Hello and welcome to Romaniacs. Strap on your tennis shoes and open your checkbook. We've got some peerages to own. I'm Rob <laughs> Taylor and joining me this week are three lords and ladies of the realm, or they will be once the bank transfer goes through. <laughs> Naomi Smith is Chief Exec of Best for Britain. Naomi, welcome. Hello, uh, Baroness Rosamond Taylor. Taylor. Of where? Where would you choose? Oh, that's a tough one. Birth Village, Upper Astley, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) This week on our sister pod, The Bunker, we discuss Johnson's latest peerages with exiled Tory David Gorg. Would he make your peerage list? Um, No, because, uh, you know, novel novel idea here, but what about elections? Um, all, All this stuff from Johnson has just like completely further undermined the legitimacy of the Lords uh, in the eyes of sensible people. And it's it's a bloody enfeebled chamber anyway, and it usually backs down after it does a sort of minor challenge of the government every single time. So I reckon, like, let let the existing lot keep their honorific titles and, you know, their husbands and wives and their children can keep those, but force them to stand for election if they want to keep legislating. And uh, I'm afraid, in my view, the same would go for Gorky. Ian Dunt is editor of politics.co.uk and did a quiz about Scottish politics on last week's new European podcast. <laughs> oh, fuck. <laughs> Get it in early, Ian, yeah. He did Romaniacs proud by scoring a commendable zero. <laughs> Ian, welcome. Yeah, hi. Yeah. I mean, I can't, I'm just like, I am just shit at quizzes. It's not just Scottish history that I know nothing about. It's pretty much anything that isn't like current affairs and and comics. So it wasn't that unusual, really. You really hate them, don't you? Because I've been on stage with you next to you doing a quiz and you're like, my God, (laughs) you just can't deal with it. Yeah, well, it's because, okay, so I'm in the worst of both worlds, which is like, I am super, super shit at quizzes, but also like people expect me to be quite good at them. So I don't just have to deal with the obvious failure. I have to deal with sort of the look of disappointment on everyone's face whenever it comes up. So all pub quizzes are terrible. The only, and, and even when I'm right, I kind of get it right. There was a very embarrassing moment in a pub quiz like four years ago when they asked a question about um, Batwoman. And I thought, oh, fuck, this is it, man. I, I actually know the answer to this question. This is going to be my moment. And then they gave the wrong answer. They gave the answer, you know, they were like, what, who is this character really? And they gave the answer for Batgirl. And I remember like looking at my friends and I was like, am I going to fucking do this? And I thought, yeah, I'm going to do this. And I was just like, that can't stand. So I stood up and I was like, no, I'm sorry. That's wrong. That's actually Batgirl. And I remembered afterwards thinking this is like the moment that I've won the point but lost in every other way completely. <laughs> <laughs> my own self-worth, everything. <laughs> What did you make this week of the Home Office deciding to scrap its racist algorithm for processing visa applications? Is it racist? I mean, you can argue it's racist under the Equality Act. They use the data that they use for their domestic policies. So, for instance, when they conduct raids against certain nationalities and incorporate that into a traffic light system for visa appraisals. And this is partly the reason that, you know, if you know any sort of, if you've got Pakistani friends, you'll find, you know, no matter how long they've lived here, when they have a wedding and they invite family over, the family are never given the visas in order to come. If you've got Nigerian friends, the same kind of thing happens. Because regardless of the individual sort of pertinence of your case, you come from a country that has a red light next to it. Home office backed off before it could get to court. Um, and and in that, I mean, the Home Office claimed, oh, we're not, you know, accepting any of the arguments made, but then made another statement of, oh, we'll make sure there's no unconscious bias, you know, going forward. And so basically they did tacitly concede it. It's important to note, not just for the content of it, but just for the fact that it was a judicial review. And the government, as it did before, you know, Chris Grayling tried to get rid of judicial review under David Cameron. The government, again, has got its eyes on judicial review. And the reason that they want to get rid of it, I mean, it's quite easy for them to do because most people have no fucking idea what it is. But the reason they want to get rid of it is because of cases like this, because it helps you keep um, the government on the straight and narrow, it helps you hold them to account. So you look at a case like this, you think this is exactly why they would rather get rid of this mechanism. Nina Schick has advised campaigns for Joe Biden, Emmanuel Macron and the former NATO Secretary General Anders Rasmussen. She's an expert in the ways information can misshape democracies. And this week she publishes a new book, Deep Fakes and the Infocalypse, What You Urgently Need to Know. Hi, Nina. Hi, Roz. We're going to talk about the book in more detail in a minute, but it's amazingly current. You're writing about the killing of George Floyd, which only happened in June. How much rewriting did you have to do? Well, I was on a crazy deadline. I had um, a six-week schedule to write the book. 
which was insane because shortly after I started that, we went into lockdown. I had a daughter who was six months old and then we lost our nanny. So that was interesting. Um, <laughs> but with regards to George Floyd, um, all of that started unfolding just as I was about to send my fan- final manuscript off. And the interesting thing was that I had kind of um, talked about some of the things that were going to happen, saying that they might happen. So I'd been talking about race relations and how a video uh, with any kind of link to police brutality could set off this huge um, movement in the United States around the world. And then George Floyd happened. So it was really like the text was already ready. And then I just had to go in and put it in. So it didn't actually require a lot of rewriting. Um, But just don't write a book in six weeks with a six month old. We learned from Reuters on Monday that the US-UK trade documents that were leaked before the 2019 election were hacked directly from the email account of Liam Fox by the Russians. It lends a certain amount of credence to the ISC's report on Russian interference, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, to me, I am just stunned that there is, you know, credible people actually saying that Russian interference didn't really happen in the UK. I've been tracking Russian interference in kind of Western democracies, starting with the invasion of Ukraine and what happened in Georgia from about, you know, 2008 onwards. So to think that UK has not been interfered with with Russia and credible people thinking that is just nonsense. And Liam Fox's email, I am shocked. You know, I am really, really shocked because in 2016, when all of the Pizzagate happened, when Russian hackers hacked into John Podesta's email and the DNC, they did the same thing. You know, they did this four years ago. So really, our minister should have a more secure email access. The fact that they didn't after they knew what had happened in the United States is just stunning stupidity really. This week we talked to Nina about the new cold war of information and stories behind her book plus brain drains to the plains of Spain and Germany and France. (laughs) New research shows that Brexit has inspired an exodus of experts to Europe and Ian Duncan Smith fails to read the small print all coming up on Romaniacs. Photoshop has been around for decades and Hollywood studios have been able to manipulate images for a long time. The trouble is that now almost anyone can do it if they have the right technology and do it convincingly. Deepfakes are the term for video that uses AI to make people do and say things that they've never done. The results range from the sublime, replacing the kid in Home Alone with Sylvester Stallone and creating Home Stallone, to the dangerous with dedicated hobbyists creating fake porn with real actors' faces and politicians making statements they'd never dream of. Our own Ned Schick is an expert on deep fakes, and her book Deep Fakes and the Infocalypse is off out today, the 6th of August, if you're listening as a Patreon. Nina, why do you call it the Infocalypse? Well, I first came to deepfakes, you know, they only started emerging two and a half years ago. And at the time, I was advising the NATO Secretary General, and we were looking at new ways um, that foreign powers could intervene in elections and kind of evolving forms of disinformation. So deepfakes originated in porn. And as soon as I saw them in porn, I was like, wow, the power of this technology is immense. Yes, it starts with non-consensual pornography, but you can kind of imagine in what are the context they can be used. But I call it the infocalypse because deepfakes didn't emerge in a vacuum. I've been looking at disinformation and information campaigns in geopolitics and politics for the last decade. And really what we've been seeing starting probably in the last decade is a crisis of myths and disinformation. We've already seen how effective audiovisual material, which is miscontextualized or altered or manipulated in some way, um, has been all around the world in shaping political discourses. So against that backdrop, the fact that you now have AI enhanced kind of video manipulations is just really the next evolving threat. So I needed a word to talk about this increasingly untrustworthy and dangerous information ecosystem, which we all exist in. And that's when I landed on Infocalypse. And when it comes to the when it comes to the Infocalypse, um, deepfakes are really just the latest trend, but. We have been bad at dealing with our crisis of myths and disinformation for the last 10 years. So we need to be a lot better because the kind of new forms of creating disinformation are just about to get a lot more potent. This morning, you retweeted a pretty scary deepfake of Donald Trump 
talking to himself, which someone had created. And this was off the back of the um, now notorious interview that he did this week, where he made the most extraordinary assertions uh, about the pandemic in the United States. But this was remarkable because it actually had two Trumps on one side talking to each other. It looked really scarily realistic, didn't it? It's amazingly effective. I mean, it's an a tremendous campaigning tool. And I think really at the heart of that, that kind of taking that manipulated video, the, the lesson that we have to learn from that is that increasingly the most important medium of human communication is video. And it's just because our brains can process visual imagery far faster than it can process text. And, you know, I'm from Nepal, a country where there's still a high rate of illiteracy but now it's also a country like many other places in kind of the developing world where p- there's large swathes of illiterate population where everybody has a smartphone and can access video content, not only access video content to download, but produce and upload their own video content. So video as a medium of communication is so effective and the fact that it can now be subverted by AI and other tools should really, really make us pause and think about what that means for not only bad actors who want to um, push a narrative, but indeed for our entire perception of the world. Because I think going forward, I mean, some of us may still be old fashioned readers, but for the generations to come, you know, will they really read a book cover to cover or will they just consume video online? And that's why this AI created fake video right now is just so important to wrap our heads around. You've obviously had to watch a lot of these things in uh, recent years. Which which is the most terrifying one you've seen? So, again, I just want to impress on just how quickly this technology is developing. So the original use case was in non-consensual pornography. And just before we started re- recording, I was telling you guys about how every fantasy, um, well, every presumably male fantasy is catered to. It's it's an unbelievably gendered phenomenon, uh, deep fake pornography online. And anybody you can imagine is basically available. Uh, and I was just telling you guys about, you know, Anne Coulter, the far right, uh, the far right commentary commentator in the US, you know, there's literally deep fake porn of Ann Coulter online and Ivanka Trump. And that is deeply, deeply disturbing to me because It's a very violent way of appropriating women's bodies and invading their privacy um, in in ways that are just so dangerous. And what's really interesting, I think, is that it's a harbinger of a civil liberties issues that's to come because these fake porn creations are created just by taking images of somebody without their consent. And yes, their first manifestation is in porn, but they can be used anywhere, right? So if I didn't like Ian Dunt and I wanted to destroy his career, it's pretty easy for me now to clip some audio of him speaking, for example, on the Romaniacs podcast, and then put that through my machine learning algorithm so it learns to appropriate Ian Dunt's voice, and then to release on social media a leaked kind of audio recording of Ian Dunt saying some horribly racist things. I could destroy his reputation and his livelihood by doing that. So I think for me, some of the deepfake porn, which is super disturbing, not only because of what it does to women, but also what it implies for our civil liberties and privacy is very, very disturbing. And it's all uh, women who are being exploited in this way. You don't get deepfake porn with uh, men being appropriated in, in this fashion. No. So if you, I mean, there's a huge deep fake porn ecosystem online. Um, like I said, it just emerged at the end of 2017. Um, there, the Moore's law for deep fake seems to suggest that uh, the number of videos double every six months. So right now we're looking at about 50,000 deep fake porn videos of women online. Again, all women, no men. And the reason is probably just because there isn't a demand for men. There isn't any reason why you can't create deep fake porn of men. Uh, It's just that the machine learning systems that create this stuff are trained on female bodies. And the interesting thing is that it is not a phenomenon that is uniquely targeted at celebrities, although it might seem that way at first. It's like a niche female celebrity issue. 
Um, it's also something that affects all women. So you, me, Naomi, uh, we saw in 2018 the launch of this app, Deep Nude app, which you know collapsed pretty soon after it launched because its servers were so overwhelmed by the demand, which basically allowed um, anyone to upload a, a fully clothed image of any woman and then within seconds, the AI would generate an image uh, of that woman nude. So it's something that affects normal women as well as celebrities, but increasingly it's also going to affect, even if it's not in porn, everybody in domains of their per personal and uh, professional lives. And when we talk about disinformation, we have to talk about Russia because it's so active in this area. And you go, go into a lot of detail about how Russian disinformation goes back long before the mass internet creating the myth that the Americans manufactured HIV, for example, and that myth is still widely believed. Was that sort of a proof of concept for disinformation? Uh, disinformation? Yeah, I mean, the kind of the way that I approached the book was really through kind of my own experiences. And given that I was I've been working in politics for a long time and specifically looking at what Russia did around the invasion of Ukraine, the annexation of Crimea um, and the information war it fought around Ukraine and then increasingly it, on the European continent when it came to the EU's migrant crisis, uh, the US election, Brexit, and what it's doing now, there, it's undeniable when it comes to geopolitics and information warfare that Russia is the master, as I call it. Um, these are tactics and techniques that it adopted. You know, it's been a, doing this kind of stuff for decades. You know, it was doing this in the Cold War. And in the book, I kind of track... Um, a Soviet disinformation campaign in the 1980s when they, they it was called Operation Infection. And it was basically the myth that the CIA manufactured HIV AIDS to kill African-Americans. And it went viral in about 10 years. And it is still pervasive to this day. There are huge rates of, um, well, there, uh, there are still a large proportion of African-American people who believe that HIV was created by the government. And therefore, this has a direct impact on public health because some of them deny, uh, do, do not want to have the health care because they think that this is somehow related to a government conspiracy. Now, if you look at Russian disinformation now, it's still, the tactics are still the same. It's just that the ability for these myths to go viral is no, no longer a 10-year period. You know, it can take seconds. Mm -hmm. It can take a day. And it's not only one lie about um, HIV creation. There's numerous lies coming from multiple angles and targeting every uh, part of the political spectrum. So it's really interesting to look at um, when it comes to information warfare and geopolitics, how Russian tactics have become far more potent in this new information ecosystem. And interestingly, how other rogue and authoritarian states are now learning from Russia and starting to adopt some of their tactics. And the very notable um, development since the Hong Kong protests and since the rise of COVID is how China has been starting to emulate Russian disinformation campaigns against the West. I mean, China is a master propaganda, but until fairly recently, it was doing this kind of propaganda campaign at home. Now it's increasingly infiltrating kind of the Western information and social media spaces to do what Russia has been doing as well. And do we have a sense yet of what kinds of disinformation Russia and China are putting out about COVID-19? What's the, is it, is it mostly vaccines, for example, and the prospect of a vaccine and trying to make people sceptical about the efficacy of that? Or is it something else? So I um, I have a chapter on COVID in the book, and it's just, it is really interesting because I would say the number one strategic objective is to create chaos and a lack uh, and a, and distrust in public authorities and institutions right so what russia has been doing is pushing a lot of disinformation around the origins of covid so again that covid was engineered in a lab by the cia as a biological weapon to kill Chinese people. And they, they don't only push it in the West. When COVID first emerged, this is what they started pushing in China, being like, oh, well, there's this new geopolitical war between China and the US. So now the US has released this biological weapon that's engineered 
to kill Chinese people. And then as COVID started developing and it hit Iran, then it obviously became, oh, well, yes, Iran is another enemy uh, of the United States. So you see it's more evidence of how they've used um, DNA specific engineered technology to hit Iranians. And then it went to Italy. And then the lie developed, right? It became about how big American pharma companies had developed it because they already had the vaccine. And this was also that, you know, evil capitalism could profit, and so on and so on. Um, And the interesting thing about China was that initially, I mean, Chinese propaganda has, you can always, you can see it as almost a narrative of control, wanting to present themselves as a responsible and benign kind of superpower. But for the first time with COVID, they started adopting the Russian tropes around biological warfare to seed um, uncertainty about the origins of the virus. So you even had their foreign affairs spokesperson starting to come out, saying stuff in February, things like, oh, well, we don't actually know that this this virus originated in China. We know that there was a U.S. military presence in Wuhan in October. What were they doing there? So increasingly, China and Russia, and by the way, Iran, although to a much lesser effect, and Saudi Arabia, have been pushing disinformation around the origins of COVID to again, like I say, to seed mistrust in public health systems and to make America look um, like a pro- proponent of biological warfare. And very interestingly, that's a trope that goes all the way back to the Cold War with the HIV creation myth. Nina, I'm really interested in um, how this might impact on our you know, entire sort of judicial system. Um, when we were growing up, I mean, obviously, you, you know, you've said that Hollywood has been able to manipulate images for a long time. But, but when we were growing up, you know, there was this mantra of the camera never lies. Um, and it, as, as one sort of, you know, a basic example, I was watching a, a really good documentary about how Rudy Giuliani managed to break the New York mob. Um, and so much of the evidence that was used uh, hung on photos and voice recordings of their criminal activity to, to bring a case successfully against them. So, I mean, are you concerned that, that deep fakes could affect our entire legal system if, if seeing is no longer believing? Absolutely. And I think you raise a tremendously important point right there, because the thing about deep fakes is just their mere existence um, undermines any kind of notion of shared reality or um, undermines the notion of video evidence, which has been so important until now, right? And the fact that now you have this technology that can fake anyone saying and doing anything is very, very dangerous because you can you know, you can slander someone in a way, um, doing things and saying things that they didn't do. However, on the flip side, it also enhances something which is known as the liar's dividend. And that is that everybody gets plausible deniability. Mm. Even if you have authentic evidence of something, something which, by the way, has become increasingly important in the developing world, right? Video evidence um, to support kind of, human rights organizations. Um, And I kind of go into that in in a chapter of my book where there's a fragile consensus around video evidence and um, citizen activists and capturing kind of abuses to then bring those who are guilty to hold them to account. But with the liar's dividend, if everything can be faked and everyone has plausible deniability, then you can see how that is a tremendously powerful weapon for those who are bad actors. And you already see this happening. So for example, in 2016, which was probably the nadir in uh, US politics at the time, but then it went much lower, right? We, we didn't know how far it could fall. Donald Trump, the tape emerged where he, gra- he bragged about grabbing women by the pussy. At the time, he had to come out and apologize. Yes, it was churlish. He didn't like that he had to apologize, but people thought, well, if he doesn't apologize, it's going to end his campaign. And he came out, did the interview and said, I'm sorry, it was locker room talk. Now, today, he can just say that video is a deep fake. And yeah, what's really yeah. interesting is that he's already started to do that. He's already started to do that about videos. He's actually even done it about that video, the grab them by the pussy tape. The entire consensus around evidence yeah and video risks disintegrating because of both kind of ends of the spectrum. 
and, and can, that's so fascinating. And can we just stick with Trump um, ever so briefly? He, you, you know, you're a soothsayer. Your book, you know, correctly predicts that that he would try to delegitimize postal votes. And now, of course, he's even suggesting calling off the whole election. Um, for those of us that that are really involved with elections, um, and say, if you were still advising Joe Biden, how would you advise us to approach elections, given all you now know about misinformation? Oh, uh, oh, that's tricky one. Um, hmm. Well, I mean, I would basically say, okay, speaking very broadly, in uh, I would say, and this is kind of really the theme of the entire book, and um, so it's a broader thing than just elections. You, we have to kind of focus. Given, okay, so the first, the reason why I called it the apocalypse. Or, or termed it as such, is so that we have a conceptual framework for this information ecosystem, which we all exist in, which affects everything from geopolitics to election to our personal lives. We need to focus on fixing the infrastructure around that ecosystem, because as long as trust keeps being undermined, as long as bad actors can still fill the information ecosystem with bad information and disinformation and misinformation, it doesn't something like an election can always be corrupted, right? Um, Not only by foreign actors, but increasingly, as we're starting to see with the US election coming up, by homegrown disinformation campaigns. And really, you have now with, with Trump, depending, first of all, if he loses, and then if he loses, how badly he loses, this is really going to be a watershed moment. Because if he loses, you know, will he go quietly? Will the institution stand? Because I imagine if he if he lost and refused to leave the White House, the Secret Service would just get him out. But I think the next thing that's most important is how will his supporters react? Because if he stoked this narrative of betrayal, knowing full well he might lose the election, even if he did lose the election and he was kicked out of the White House, but then he somehow manages manages to play on this narrative of grievance to stroke um, a civil insurgency or some kind of civil unrest at home, which isn't beyond the realm of the possible, if you see what's happened with the George Floyd video, then in a way, you know, that, that's another instance of how the, you know, our corrupt information ecosystem is um, destroying our democracy. So it, it's, a, it's a really big question. But in the book, in, in the final chapter, I kind of start looking at solutions. And the first thing to do is to conceptualize and to understand, to just put this all within a framework so we can see like, oh, everything that's happening on every level from geopolitics to domestic politics to um, our individual lives. And then the second part is to defend against it. And I wish I could give you a silver bullet answer and say, this is what we need to do. But the reality is it needs to be a society-wide mobilization. And there's lots of different organizations and groups that are doing work in different parts, and they need to come together to do a kind of networked approach. There are countries where this kind of networked approach towards bad information and disinformation works. And um, one amazing example is Estonia, which has always been kind of since Soviet uh, since the Cold War, been at the forefront of uh, fighting Soviet disinformation. So once society recognizes this as a priority and takes a networked networked approach, that's how we start to fight back. Um, Amber, I mean, I always go back to that thing of Amber Rudd sort of saying that she didn't need to understand WhatsApp in order to regulate it which is sort of a troubling statement really like is there any is there any sense that you see sort of the political class either in you know America or Britain having the kind of tech know-how the tech literacy to to tackle this stuff or are they always going to be a step behind that's really I mean one of the big problems because like when we talk about disinformation and misinformation um too often the kind of response is, oh, well, government should just regulate it or the tech companies should just fix it. And in my experience of working with policymakers on this, um, unfortunately, a lot of policymakers who have the power are just from a generation where these issues, uh, you know, they've evolved at a rate faster than their understanding of the world. And one Mm. great interpret one great example of that is um when i was talking to anders who was the you know former nato secretary general about deep fakes and why i thought they were such a dangerous new frontier um of disinformation and information warfare 
he was more concerned about like, well, you know, like, do they have tanks? Are they at the border? Is the little green man at the border? And that was a, that anecdote is perfect to illustrate how quickly technology is changing our information ecosystem much faster than society can cope. And if you look at politicians and policymakers, people who are in positions of power who have tended to kind of climb their way up the ladder and tend to be more advanced in their years, they do just find some of this stuff really hard to understand. So again, the solutions cannot only come from policymakers because quite often their suggestions and their ideas for regulation are counterproductive. Were there any um were there any fakes that fooled you when you were doing the research? Um so yeah, loads. I mean honestly, obviously I was looking because um I, I knew they were deep fakes, right? So when you look mm-hmm. at the deep fake, deep fake porn, uh, I knew they were deep fakes. But if I had just seen them, honestly, I don't know that I would have known that they were deep fakes. And every kind of piece of content that I looked at, I knew had been manipulated by AI. But without that knowledge, there's no way I would have known. And this is the scary thing about deep fakes. Because, okay, so they only started emerging about two and a half years ago. And looking at some of the examples that are out there now, you can tell it's not quite right. You know, it doesn't bridge uncanny valley. It looks a bit Mm -hmm. off. But the technology is getting so good and accelerating at such a rate that like it's going to be impossible, impossible for the human eye to tell a real from a fake. And any kind of technical solution, so building AI to detect them, Uh, Because of the adversarial nature of the AI behind it, every time your detector gets better and learns to detect a deep fake, the generator gets better too. So every time you build a solution to detect Mm -hmm. content, an automatic one powered by AI, the actual AI that can generate the fake gets better. So you're in this never ending kind of cycle of um, like a cat and mouse game. Um, I, I mean... For, for listeners who are interested, have a look at, if you don't want to look at the deepfake porn, um, have a look at the uh, Extinction Rebellion uh, deepfake made of the of the Belgian prime minister. Uh, this was made by Extinction Rebellion in which she claims that COVID is a direct result of degradation to our environment and makes a speech, which she never did. I mean, that is intensely authentic looks it's shocking uh or have a look at the barack obama video on on youtube made by buzzfeed that's another one where where it's very very convincing there's well there's hundreds of them online Hello, it's Andrew Harrison, the producer here. If you like Romaniacs, you will love The Bunker. Every Wednesday, the Romaniacs regulars plus new guests get together for a no-holds-barred political roundtable about anything and everything except Brexit. What we are definitely living through is a golden age of incompetence. It is a season of utter insanity and lunacy in the United States. On Mondays, Tuesdays, Thursdays and Fridays, there's The Bunker Daily with one-to-ones and explainers on everything from the economy to the the arts, culture, and even food. Italians are extravagant about food, but never wasteful. That's what I like. We have to create a kinder, gentler world where everyone has the basic decencies of life. That's The Bunker, with all your favourites from Romaniacs and more. Get it wherever you get your podcasts. Michael Gove said this country has had enough of experts, and sure enough, they're all leaving. <laughs> research from teams of British and German social scientists for the OECD and Eurostat has found that since Brexit, migration to the EU from the UK has in- increased by approximately 30%, and the number of Britons seeking German citizenship has gone up by the 2,000%. These increases are of a magnitude that you would expect when a country is hit by a major economic or political crisis, co-author Daniel Auer told The Guardian, to which we can only reply, no shit, Sherlock. Ian, what does this exodus mean for Britain in practical terms? Well, we don't know, really. I mean, it's, it, you know, most, most of the stuff that they were pointing to happened very quickly after the referendum result. So it's probably part and parcel of that first spasm of sort of shock and a recalibration of, you know, your own sense of identity and of practicalities, right? Like, I, you notice that with lots of countries that didn't require registration, like France and like Spain, the numbers were much higher there. So it could well be referring to people who were already there and just hadn't bothered signing up to anything and then suddenly they needed to register. But, you know, in the in the sort of medium long term, there's no two ways this goes. You know, if, if you start downgrading 
your economy. If you make it, if you'd say that London is no longer going to be the most exciting place in Europe to, to live and to work, you are going to find that people who are very intelligent, who are sort of very interesting, who will come up with the inventions of tomorrow and the entrepreneurs of tomorrow and all of that stuff will want to be somewhere else. So, I mean, we, we sort of know that general direction of travel. I mean, in this case, it just started pointing towards, first of all, a proof of just just how much of a shock this was to an awful lot of people right at the beginning and a big spasm of movement there. And also to, to a broader trend that we just haven't seen the end of yet. And they were right to be shocked, weren't they? Because I think our worst fears of how bad Brexit could be were, were confirmed. Um, see, the best case scenario of staying in the single market uh, was just completely it was was abandoned but the researchers said we're observing a new social integration phenomenon and a redefining of what it means to be british european is is this a new identity the british in exile yeah it might be i mean there's there's again this is all just too early right because because there's also the new identity that's happening here right where a lot of people by virtue of it being something that was challenged started thinking of themselves more explicitly as Europeans, started talking about it and incorporating it into their identity more. And when they started talking about, you know, where do you think you're from? People, you, you would hear people say things like, well, I'm from my local town and from my country and from my continent. So that was happening here and that will certainly be happening some outside. So there will be a sort of class of British exile. I think exile might be too strong a word for us to use <laughs> respectively about this thing. And that would definitely be there. People will start to develop that as part of their identity. Naomi, we've seen that since Brexit, European cities like Frankfurt have been advertising themselves as an alternative to London for things like financial services. And COVID is already making it a lot harder for people to emigrate. We're probably going to see once in a generation levels of unemployment in the UK. And normally when that happens, people move abroad to work. But now that will be very difficult. Is this when we're really going to start missing freedom of movement as Britons? Um, well, uh, our unemployment figures in the UK could well be, uh, you know, very, very bad, if not worse. But there are probably not going to be a plethora of jobs going across Europe. So I'm not entirely sure that this will be the thing that makes us miss freedom of movement. Ireland is predicted to have near 8% unemployment, um, higher than some are predicting for the UK even. And of course, tourism reliant Greece and Spain are forecasted to have close to 20% unemployment. Even France, I think, is expecting around 10%. Germany, of course, is bucking the trend and all of that. But, you know, Brits would be competing against a lot of other better linguists uh, from across the EU27 for those jobs and with uh, visa-free rights to, to be there. But I think what's certainly true is that young people in the UK are royally screwed by this double whammy. Uh, of Brexit and COVID. Um, we're, we're potentially facing a lost generation even. And obviously, we've seen the story about Scottish hires results this week with the horrendous story of, of you know, good students from poorer backgrounds having been given lower than anticipated grades. Um, and next week, of course, we've got A-level results day. And aside from the fact that some students are going to get grades given to them that they may be disappointed with, because like me, they were the kind of person that hoped to pull it out of the bag on exam day um you know for, for, for some of them tertiary education isn't the plan and they're not expecting to go on to university they're hoping to enter things like apprenticeships and other entry level roles in hospitality and retail and of course they've been axed and my heart really breaks for them and I, I think this government has been wholly bloody negligent they squandered that first lockdown. You know, they didn't get track and trace up and running uh, properly. It still isn't. Infections are too high. People are too fearful. The economy's dwindling. And of course, they didn't take the opportunity to extend the transition period to take the sting out of Brexit and help shore up a, a few more jobs for young people. The study does show that Brits are working harder to integrate into their host countries than ever before by learning languages and so on. And for potential rejoiners, I know we don't talk about rejoin yet. Is this, oh, is this positive in a way? <laughs> <laughs> is this positive in a way, though? Those British immigrants are raising a new generation of better integrated British Europeans who might help to salvage our re reputation. Um, hopefully. Um, I mean, it, it is worth remembering that most Brits abroad didn't vote for Brexit anyway. But what has been interesting um, recently, though, is to see the support for the Conservatives among uh, emigrants to the EU or, or expats, as, as the Brits prefer to call themselves, um, a fucking awful term, um, has collapsed. So that the Tories have lost about two thirds of the support they previously enjoyed from Brits eligible to vote in the UK, but who live in places like France and Spain. 
Um, and I think, you know, what does help is the messaging from many of the domestic EU leaders. Um, so, for example, in Denmark, uh, the, the prime minister there, uh, Lars Rasmussen, I think, um, he has said, we will look after our Brits. And and they have, you know, that they're, they're doing far more than our government has done to look after EU 27 nationals um, still, still based in Britain or, you know, not even doing a particularly good job of looking after British born British people at the moment. Um, so it might be that Eurosceptics begin to look a bit more favourably on those countries led by rather more, you know, sympathetic human beings than we've got leading us here in the UK. Nina, you're better travelled than most of us. Um, if you were about to lose your job because of Brexit, where would you uh, decamp to all other things being equal? Germany. Um, I, I love Berlin. Um I'm Hoff German. I think it's an amazing city. It's becoming increasingly international. And if you saw from Germany's kind of response to COVID, you know, they have a system that actually works. My, I mean, my brother was um, in Germany and one of his flatmates is, is a nurse. It's during the pandemic. This was during the pandemic. And she she wasn't working with any kind of COVID patients. And this was early on in like March. They found out that she had maybe been in an area where somebody had 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 COVID and immediately everybody else in that household was contacted by the authorities. You know, they did the track and trace. They had a two week quarantine. They all got a test. And that was when, (laughs) you know, over a year, I think um, we still hadn't gotten any test kits available on the ground. So to me, that was a really kind of visceral illustration of how when um, things got bad, you know, at least the system in Germany seemed to be working a lot better. I'm, I'm a big fan. Now it's time for To the Barricades, where each week a Romaniacs regular flies the flag for a noble cause. This week, it's the turn of the doyen of disinformation, Nina Schick. Um, okay, so in um, kind of honor of uh, the the topic on the apocalypse and all the disinformation we've been talking about, um, one of the things that I say in my book is that we all need to support the work of fact-checking organizations who do an incredible job, um, you know, helping us navigate this new crisis of mis- and disinformation. So these are organizations like Full Fact, Pollet Fact, Snopes, AP Fact Checked, um, I've listed a couple in my book and they all really deserve our support. We just have time to wrap up a few more Brexit stories this week. Who knew that Ian Duncan Smith can't read the small print? (laughs) This week, the not quite quiet enough man attacked Boris Johnson's famous oven ready deal by tweeting that the EU want our money and they want us to stop being a competitor. The withdrawal agreement we signed last year sadly helps them. This was, of course, the deal he voted for. Ian, was he really not paying attention last year or is he like so many Brexiteers before him trying to push the envelope and get the no-deal Brexit they seem to crave? Why not? Why not both? Um, so I don't believe, for, you know, he clearly had no idea what was in it. Um, although he did say, I mean, not just voting for it, by the way, that someone brought, I can't remember who it was, brought up um, one of his comments uh, in the House of Commons during the debate where he said, look, we've been over this, you know, for hundreds of hours in this place. No one on earth could have any sort of surprises about what's lurking in this text. Let's just get on with it and get out. And you sort of think, well, apparently now there are surprises in the text. Although, of course, in sort of classic Ian Duncan Smith, he really is just the most juddering imbecile of a man. Like even by vote, not even the opinions, but just the manner in which he puts them across and the things he's come up with. Because even when he's right, he's wrong. Right. So he's now decided, oh, it actually turns out it's a terrible deal, which is obviously right. But the reason that he's come up with that answer is, for, for shit that he is just completely made up. He's found, he thinks he's found this this number. The number is 160 billion that apparently we're on the hook to the EU for. This is complete nonsense, where he's basically either misunderstood or more likely been misinformed, or more likely than that, perfectly well understands it and is just lying about it to pursue his sort of dog shit agenda, which refers to basically your membership subscriptions to the European Investment Bank. And like generally, member states, you, you pay in 10% and the rest of the 90% can be called in if, if for any reason anything goes wrong. The only way, I mean, fuck knows where he's got this 160 number. I mean, you can't put, you, there's no maths on earth that, to me that could work out where on earth he's managed to do that. But nevertheless, the only way in which that would happen 
is if every single investment project that the European Investment Bank is is working on, including all these you know AAA rated, you know, working in energy and infrastructure, was to completely collapse. If there was no restructuring that could be you know made available, if you couldn't extend the loan, you know, if, if all of that happened, then maybe they'd call in the money. In other words this will not happen. There's no scenario in which that happens. So that part, so even again, incredible, almost sort of biblical level performance from him that he somehow managed to stumble on the right opinion for reasons that are just utterly enfeebled um, and, and entirely false. Um, there's a clear campaign from the Brexit altruists to rubbish the withdrawal agreement, um, even though nine months ago they, they said it was brilliant, far better than Theresa May's. Why? I mean, is the outside world noticing that they're slacking off their own brilliant idea? Have they have they realised yet, or, or is it just washing over them? I don't think the outside world's noticing what Ian Duncan says. I mean, it's basically just a bunch of us nerds on Twitter who are paying any attention. I mean, the, there's 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 no penetration for you know Brexit news. I don't think at the moment. I mean, maybe a little bit on No Deal stuff or the talks, but certainly not on this stuff. And I sort of wonder. How much of it is a strategy to try and get no deal or, you know, to get out from the Jordan agreement? And how much of it isn't just this sort of personal thing for a lot of the Brexiters of, you know, for a guy like Ian Duncan Smith, remember, you got a lot of attention during the Brexit debate, right? You were one of the big figures, you know, who was pushing this agenda, who was, you know, light by side. Now, as that debate has faded in the, in the face of COVID, he sort of needs something to attach himself to, to just get a bit of attention. And, and I imagine that as much as any kind of strategic aim of securing no deal and all of that is partly what's motivating him when he says this god awful nonsense. Are you saying that he's not going to be remembered for the triumph that is universal credit? No, no. And not even for his wonderful leadership of the Conservative Party. All of these great, <laughs> these great achievements will fade into time. Naomi, in further hate to say I told you so news, the government is now officially warning medical suppliers about the lack of a Brexit extension and that they'll need a stockpile of at least six weeks of medicine for the end of the year. Is that a realistic stockpile period, given that we've no idea how the Kent Lorry Park now being built is, is going to shape up? Oh, uh, it's, uh, I just hate this so much. I mean, look, as ever, the real story isn't that stockpiling is needed uh, and no one knows what six weeks supply of some drugs looks like, but rather, and with like this just horrible, crushing inevitability, that the government was bloody well warned about this ages and ages ago and, you know, drum roll, failed to act in good time. Um, industry has warned that it isn't likely to be able to deliver it. Uh, some supermarket chains may even have to pull out of Northern Ireland entirely. And it should come as absolutely no surprise to anyone in government. You know, exactly two months ago, the FT wrote all of this up. Hancock was warned, get this sorted by the end of June. Um, in June, there was also a report by the Northern Ireland Business Brexit Working Group. They raised 67 urgent questions uh, about how new borders would work, how it could disrupt medical supplies, food supplies, etc. And they have not received a single answer from government to any one of those questions. And, you know, it just it just feels like this government... Um, have got their Google calendars open and they are only accepting entries for like, you know, January the 31st and December the 31st. And, you know, once again, Hancock's bolster it up. <laughs> that sounds like the name of like some great 70s sitcom. <laughs> <laughs> There's a deep fake you could make there, Ian. <laughs> Nina, let's talk briefly about free ports. Um, the um, UK's leading trade policy institute has warned that the uh, government's plans for 10 new free ports have basically no advantages for business. I, I seem to remember mentioning this on Romaniacs a couple of weeks mm. ago, but let's move on. Well, well what is the uh, <laughs> that free ports has on the government's imagination? What, what's their big advantage for them? I mean, in a way, it's the perfect... Um, symbol for uh, Brexit in its entirety, isn't it? I mean, let's not forget that we are leaving the biggest and single most successful uh, single market in the world and free trading experiment in the history of humanity so that we can become champions of free trade. And, uh, you know, the fact that we are putting up barriers to trade with our biggest trading partner 
uh, by leaving the single market, you know, it, it doesn't matter as long as you can scream about um, being a champion of free trade. And I see the free ports being very much in the same ilk of thinking. You, you say you're having free ports and it's wonderful for business. And, you know, aren't we doing so much to champion trade when the reality is that we've alienated ourselves from our biggest trading partner, 26 countries, and we still don't know what our trading relationships are going to be with the rest of the world. So just keep shouting free trade, but very much isn't. I think it's just the word. I think they just love the word free port. Free. Yeah. Free port. Free. Yeah. Yeah. We should have fucking called it free Europe. If, if we called Romain movement free Europe. I think lots of them quite like the word port as well, by the look of them. <laughs> no. The free European port. That was that was what the campaign should have been called. <laughs> And that brings us to the end of the show. Thanks to Naomi, Ian and Nina. Deep Fakes and the Infocalypse is out now. Nina, how long before we can deep fake an entire podcast and the panel can just sit at home while an Ian bot swears about Ian Botham? <laughs> <laughs> we can literally do that right now. <laughs> that, that is not, that, that, that was not like a serious suggestion. I didn't like the way that Nina said that just now. <laughs> I, I'm here to tell you that this entire podcast has been a deep... No, okay. As, <laughs> as regulars know, Corner Shop gave us our fantastic theme tune, Demon is a Monster. You can find all their music on Bandcamp. And if you're listening on Friday, 7th of August, it's another Bandcamp No Fee Friday. So bands receive 100% of the proceeds. We recommend Corner Shop's current album, England is a Garden, heartily. Now here are some thanks for our latest Patreon backers. Hello from me to Margaret Shankland, Wendy Newman, Simon Barker and Oliver Lemon. Hello and many thanks from me to Rachel Bentley, Don McLean, James Ryder and Nathan Jenkins. Thanks for backing us and a big hello to Steve Limpany, Stephen Spencer, Ben Brown and Claire Thorndike. And if that's, my, if that's my Claire, thank you very much Claire, lots of love. And hello from me to Seema Deverian, Claire Sprenger, Steve Norris. Is that the former Conservative mayoral candidate for London? Could be. Yes, must be. Yeah. <laughs> and Simon Smith. We'll see you all next week. Romaniacs was presented by Ross Taylor, Nina Schick, Ian Dunt and Naomi Smith. Audio production and scripting was by me, Alex Reese. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold. And Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. <laughs> Thank you.